Great. So we are back in Revelation this morning. We're in section 7 of the series, The Seven Visions of Victory. It's the section where we do see the fulfillment of God's plan in its entirety. We're at the highest point of that ever-increasing spiraling staircase. The end of, all, of God's plan, the end of all of this, means victory for us as believers. You have to be aware of that. There will come a day of final victory for us where we do celebrate eternity with our King forevermore. However, for a lost and dying world, this day is going to represent the ultimate day of defeat. And it's going to be, unfortunately, a day of horror. And that's something that's going to be made evident to us this morning as we go through our text. But before we get to the horror... I'd like to just remind you of some of the names that we learned about last week about who Jesus is. There were four names that we were given in the text. The first one was faithful and true. Jesus is faithful and true, reminding us that when we are faithless, I don't know about anyone here, but there's been very many moments in my life where I felt like I lack faith. Jesus is faithful. And because he's true, it means that everything he's promised us as his children is going to come to pass. There is nothing that can stop the plans of God from coming together. That's an encouragement for us this morning, so please be encouraged. The second name was a weird name, right? A name that nobody actually knows. It reminded us that there are certain aspects of God's plans and purposes that will always be a mystery to us. We don't understand entirely why God does things exactly the way he does things, but what we can take to heart, no matter what we're going through in our life, no matter how desperate our situation or circumstances may be, we know that all things will be worked together for our good, because that's what scripture tells us. The third name that we were given was the name that he is the word of God, reminding us that God and Jesus and the Trinity were there in heaven long before earth ever existed. And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Telling us that the Word has to have certain characteristics or traits. He has the traits of God. And so as much as there is a blessing for the world and an offer of grace and an offer of fellowship with God and an offer to come into communion with Him, there is a reality to the nature of God. And that reality says He cannot be in the presence of sin. And so if the gospel of grace is not received, the gospel becomes the gospel of judgment. That word, incidentally, and I said this last week, lives in each and every one of us. It's the weapon that we use to wage warfare. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against powers and principalities, of powers of evil in the heavenly realms. Those are the people we fight against, but we don't fight alone. We fight on our knees and with God's word. The last name that we were given, and the name that applies today, it applied then, and it will apply for the rest of eternity, is he is the king of kings. And he is the Lord of Lords. Jesus is our conquering king. And that brings us to this morning where we are going to cover two visions of victory. Both of which come about as a result of this holy war that has been waging. A war that God has been waging. And guess what? A war that we are waging alongside him. In fact, warfare is something that we are going to be talking quite a bit about this morning. It's a war that is initiated by God against the agents of darkness. It's a war that we walk lockstep with Jesus every day of our lives as we stand against the forces of darkness. And my hope is that this morning, even though we're going to hear about some things that are pretty hard to stomach, I hope that we will leave you today with some truths, just like we did last week, that we can stand on as God's plan begins to unfold. Amen? Amen. Okay, so let's bow our heads and I want to pray real quick. Father, thank you. For this word, I pray that you would, as Catherine prayed, empower it with your anointing, Lord. 
We're not here to talk about cool ideas, great ideas, man's ideas. We're here to talk about your word, and your word is living, sharper than any double-edged sword. Lord, I pray this morning that that word would be released this morning over all of us, and that you do what you need to do. Bring your spirit this morning, Lord. Let your power fall, and help us to leave you touched, changed, and ready for what it is that you're calling us to do. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me to Revelations 19. We're reading from verse 17 this morning. We've actually only got four short verses to read. In that are two visions, so we're not going to be here for very long, maybe four hours uh, compared to the rest. I'm just kidding. But it's not going to be very long this morning, and these visions are quite succinct and quite short. Verse 17 starts this way. Then I saw an angel. This is John speaking. It's the next part of the vision because his vision or his gaze has changed. Standing in the sun and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God. You know, if I'm just being honest with you, this weekend I spent a lot of time and this week preparing this message, but as I woke up this morning and I was going through it, I just felt that there was, a, there was this heaviness that had all of a sudden set on me. I had this lightness about me yesterday when I was writing this message and going through it and praying through it. But this morning I woke up and I just felt this heaviness. And I just want to say this before we go any further. And when we were praying this morning, I think something of the heaviness sort of came to me in a bit of a sort of a realization. What we're talking about today is really going to cover what's going to happen to lost people, a lot of it. It's also going to cover what's going to happen as the enemies of God are destroyed. And I think the reason I feel heavy is that I don't think that God sits in heaven and laughs about this. I don't think that God takes joy when he sees other people feeling and experiencing the full wrath of his glory. And so I think the heaviness that might settle in my or has settled in my heart is the fact that God's heart breaks when we talk about anyone going to hell. He doesn't take joy in it. He doesn't take pleasure from it. And I just want to set that up this morning as we talk about this great supper. And the first point I have for us this morning is there are are going to be two suppers, right? There are going to be two suppers that everyone on this earth will get to experience. However, there's only one choice that needs to be made. When I say everyone, you will experience one of the two suppers. But there is one choice that we have to make as humanity. A couple of weeks ago, we spoke about the first supper. Does anyone remember what that supper was? Not all, please, like, not all at once. Like, um, not Passover. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Which, I suppose, Passover could be a picture of that. But it was the marriage supper of the Lamb. We, ex- we were exposed to it in the seven words of, of triumph. It was an event that every single one of God's people are invited to. It's a dinner that we all get to go to, depending on how we've operated our lives in this world will determine where we sit at the table. But every believer is invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It is a beautiful picture of God and His people coming into eternal covenant and going to enjoy God forever. But here's the deal, right? The church needed to make itself ready in order to participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb. We needed to be clothed in His righteousness and we needed to mature as a church. And I want to say this. The church is called to move from being a hospital into becoming an army. 
Maturity means that we are not just here to fix broken bones and patch, you know, scuffed knees and make sure that everyone's fine and comfortable. The point of us as a church is to grow up from that place where God does heal us into something that God wants us to become, which is his army. And when we do that, our everlasting king comes back to this earth and he receives us as his bride. It's a glorious day. Well, what we see this morning is the polar opposite of the event. It's the polar opposite of that dinner. And it makes sense. And the reason why I say it makes sense is because if God's people are going to have the supper of great joy when we're going to be reunited with God and where we will eventually walk into everlasting life and goodness and joy and peace and love and kindness, then there has to be another supper. There has to be a supper for all of those people throughout creation who have chose to ignore God's warnings in the trumpets, who have chosen to turn their backs on God, who have chosen in the face of people preaching the gospel to reject the gospel of grace and say, that, friends, is not for me. There has to be a supper that covers those people, and there is one. It's called the Great Supper of God. And so the question is, is what is the supper all about? Well, the first thing we notice is that we're introduced to one angel, which is quite different to all the other visions that we've been through. Beforehand, we hear about many angels acting as the mouthpiece of God. They're all bringing the messages to John that God God has to say. Yet in this text, it's almost as if every single angel in in heaven has been merged into one angel. And that angel is not standing next to the sun, by the sun, on top of the sun. He is standing in the sun. It's almost as if God's light, His glory, has been focused laser-like into one single point. In South Africa, when we were younger, I'm sure you do this in America too, we used to take magnifying glasses. You remember those things? And they used to take it in God's side and we'd get the sun to come into the magnifying glass and we'd try to hide behind a tree and, and try to make that focal point hit somebody's back at the right distance, just so we could see what was going to happen, right? I mean, I'm not encouraging any children to ever do that. You should try it out with paper first. But we used to do it to people. I mean, South Africans are pretty wild. But we all know what invariably happens. The person's sitting there and everything's fine. And all of a sudden, they're like, what's going on? And then their shirt blows on fire and it's all crazy. What we're seeing here is a picture of the magnification of God's righteousness, His holiness, and all of His attributes that are perfectly pure, perfectly clean, and His righteous judgments coming into a single laser-like focus, and it's a picture of the world that is about to be judged. What we see again after that is that the angel calls to all the birds of the air to come and to enjoy this great supper. Now, before we mess up our thinking and we think, well, this is what's happening in heaven, is that God is scattering seeds on the table and he's calling in all the finches and the cardinals and all those cute birds, or he's put a whole bunch of hummingbird feeders out on his porch and he's waiting for the hummingbirds to arrive. That's not what's happening in this text. In fact, what's happening is something that we as Texans get to see very often. In fact, if you walk out of this venue and you go outside, you might even see it happen this morning because out there on the trash can is invariably a bunch of turkey vultures. They love to hang around there. You see, the birds that God is inviting to the supper are not the nice kind of birds. These are birds that eat rotting and decaying flesh. It's a picture of thousands and thousands of birds circling in the sky, just waiting for that next deer, skunk, or whatever it is, raccoon, to get knocked over by a car so that they can swoop down and eat that flesh. That's the supper that we're talking about here. 
And what this verse makes abundantly clear, and it's something that we have encountered throughout the book of Revelation, is the simple fact is that humanity has only ever had one choice to make. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19 puts this choice this way. It says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. One choice, two options, life or death. One world with two kingdoms, the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness. Those are the fundamental realities that we live out our lives. And we have to understand that when we go out into this world, that there are only two kingdoms in operation in this world. There's not three, four, five, 16 different kingdoms. There's those who are saved and those who are not saved yet. Hallelujah. Romans 6 verse 23, Paul puts this decision this way. He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a choice that we have to make this side of eternity. And I want to make this very clear. Even though this choice has eternal significant consequences, the choice itself is fundamentally a simple choice to make. You see, choosing Jesus means choosing life. On the other hand, rejecting Jesus means choosing death. As it stands today, we're not at the great supper of God yet. And so there is still time. And maybe you're here today and you've thought to yourself, well, I never even knew there was a choice to make. Maybe you've never been given the opportunity to understand that the reality is your life has eternal significance. Unfortunately, it can be significant unto death or it can be significant unto life, but the choice is yours to make. And maybe you're wondering, but how is it that we actually make that choice this morning? And this is what we need to tell the world. Paul says this in Romans 10 and verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You see, this choice that we make in our, life, in our lives, even if you're making that choice this morning, is not a choice that is made so that you can become religious and join this weird group of people called Christians who act strangely. We don't make this choice because we think that we're worthy of salvation because here's the truth. None of us in this room have ever been, nor will we ever be worthy of salvation. The only thing that has ever made us worthy for salvation is the price that Jesus paid for us on the cross. You see, fundamentally, this choice is about laying down our pride. You see, the gospel is offensive to mankind. Why? Because you have to understand that you can have no part in saving yourself. That there had to be one sent by God who was absolutely perfect, absolutely righteous, absolutely pure, who would die on your behalf. And then you have to have the humility to say, Lord, I can't do it. Will you do it for me? Accepting Jesus, accepting what he did on the cross is the only way, friends, we don't make it to the supper. And it's the only way we avoid what happens next. Verse 18. Come and gather for the great supper of God, says to the birds, to eat the flesh of kings, 
the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Second truth for us this morning is there is no one on this earth, doesn't matter who they are, that is exempt from the consequences of rejecting Jesus' offer. Maybe at this point it will be helpful for us to understand where in the timeline of Revelation does this event happen and exactly what is being described in this event. Now again, this is my interpretation. You might differ with me on this. But remember how last week I said that in some of these visions of victory, we're going to jump forward in time and then in other visions we're going to go back in time. Well, these two visions are actually a great example of that. The two visions we'll cover this morning. So in terms of this Great Supper, what is it and when does it happen? Well, first of all, this event that we're reading about now shows the inevitable destruction and defeat of God's enemies. What will become clearer a bit later on is that it's not just the physical enemies, it's not just the human enemies of God, it is also the supernatural enemies. It's the defeat of everyone that's ever opposed God. Secondly, the picture is the result of the war that the rider on the white horse has been, is currently, and will still wage. And so in terms of what this event is focusing on, I believe that it is focusing on the end result after what we would call Judgment Day or Armageddon. In other words, the battle's been fought. Everything has been decided. And what's left, if you picture it in your mind, if you've ever watched The Kingdom of Heaven, is a valley strewn with dead, decaying corpses. That's what we're looking at right now. This is after everything has happened, but before the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's a reminder to us that there will come a time in this world and maybe even in our lifetimes, in fact it will come at some point in our lifetimes when we enter into eternity where judgment will cease forever. There's a point in time, friends, where God will have no one left to judge because every human being that is alive together with God will be a Christ follower and will be in Christ. And so that's pretty exciting for me because I'm honestly, you know, getting really tired of talking about judgment all the time. But it's coming. I can't help it. But there's going to be a day where there is no more judgment. Amen? What's more is that this picture, even though all of us this morning are still engaged in spiritual warfare, even though we're still fighting a battle, this picture tells us that the outcome of the war has been decided. In other words, church, you win. We are victorious. You guys are really not excited about that. (laughs) Golly gosh. We win the war, friends. We are going to win. And there's no one and nothing that can stop us from winning because Jesus bought it on the cross. He's doing it right now. And he will come back and finalize what he started at some point in the future. And what's clear through all of this text is that no matter who you are, the outcome of this battle is sure. And no matter how powerful you may be, no matter how much you think that you've got control this side of eternity, everybody is going to be judged. This text talks about a few things. It talks about the kings. The kings represent those people that are in charge, right? Those that control nations, industries, institutions, people that are opposed to God. What's going to happen to them? They're going to end up on the wrong side of eternity, friends. They will be destroyed. It speaks about captains, 
the businessmen and women in this world who through their power and financial resources have tried to silence God's people. And in some cases, they've even excluded God's people from the economies of the day. Just think of the church in Smyrna. Well, guess what? They'll be dealt with too. The mighty men represents those people who are the untouchables of this world. Remember the, the islands and the mountains that we read about in Revelation 16 in Armageddon, how even the mountains and the islands will be brought down? Will those people that we can't reach, that we think nobody will ever be able to stop, those principalities that we think cannot be overcome, the principalities of abortion, friends of sex trafficking of sexual confusion and gender confusion those things that none of us think we can fight against today because they're too strong too big too powerful will come under the control of God and they will be defeated too friends it says the horses and the riders which represents people who have placed their trust in their power. That's what horses represent. People who thought their power and their influence will be able to get them through anything. Those people, friends, will also be judged. It speaks about the flesh of all men, meaning every single person on this earth, whether you're rich, poor, or anything in between. Black, white, doesn't matter, friends. If you've chosen to reject the gospel of grace, you will receive your due reward because the gospel becomes the gospel of judgment and your body will be on that field for the birds of the air to eat. There isn't a nicer way to put that. And I know that this is a heavy picture. And it's vivid. But it shouldn't shock us. It should disturb us. It should create in us a desire to want to go out there into the world and preach the gospel. It should automatically right now, and if it's not, I'm going to urge you to start thinking about it at this moment, to think of all the people in our lives that we know whose bodies will be laid on that field one day. It should motivate us to want to go and tell people today, right now, after this meeting, let me tell you again about Jesus. I know you've said no before, but I'm going to tell you again because I know what's coming, friends, and it's not beautiful, and I don't want to see your body there, friends. We take no joy in this. This is heavy stuff, but it's real. And if we don't tell people, then who's going to tell them? This picture is echoed throughout Scripture. Jeremiah 46 and verse 10. That day is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, to avenge himself on his foes. I know there's a bunch of people in this church who have been wronged by somebody. Somebody's done something so hurtful against you. Somebody's hurt you in a way that I cannot possibly understand and maybe nobody will ever be able to understand. But what's coming to your heart is this root of bitterness and all you can think of is that I've got to get back to these people. I've got to make sure they get their due reward. Friends, can I tell you, tell you something? Vengeance is the Lord's. Let go of that. It's destroying your own life. It's not harming them. Just let go of it and say, Lord, I'm handing this over to you because I know one day you will bring vindication. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. The immediate context of this text is the destruction of Egypt. And make, make no mistake, Egypt got what they deserved. But throughout Revelation, Egypt has been used as a picture of all the nations of the world that are in opposition to God's people, similar to the way Babylon is used as wilderness. And what's clear is that one day, all of these systems, all of these people, all of these, 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 these I don't know what to say, it's so disgusting, these horrible things that have been hurting the people of God, will one day be defeated. And that brings us to the third vision. Verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, 
with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Third truth. Just like Babylon was destroyed, the beasts are doomed to destruction too. I don't know if you've noticed something, but we were looking at the end, right? The aftermath of God's war. The results. And now we've stepped back a little bit in time. In fact, we've stepped back to a picture that we've seen echoed throughout Scripture. The sixth uh, seal, the seventh bowl of God's wrath, the trumpets. We've gone back to Armageddon. This is a picture of Armageddon again. And so we went forward in time. This is what's going to happen. But now we're back at this battle. But there's something we need to notice about this picture. Remember how last week we saw that Jesus comes riding in and behind him is this host of sort of these warriors that are following him, dressed in white linen, ready to do battle with their king. Remember I said that it's a convenient picture that I think we often take out of context because we think that that army represents some heavenly host of warriors. Well, something similar can happen to us in Revelations 19 verse 19 because here's Jesus again. And guess what? He's on the valley of Armageddon. And guess who's with him? It's an army. But I believe that the army, like we interpreted Revelations last week, does not represent an army of heavenly beings. I believe this army represents the army of God, God's people, His church. It's all of us this morning. And there's a war waging in this picture. And I want to say to you, though, that the war that's waging in this picture, I don't believe is a sudden moment in time. See, often we can look at day of, the Day of Judgment or the Day of Armageddon, and depending on what movie you've watched or what series you've watched or if you've been left behind or haven't been left behind or wherever you fall within the spectrum, often we look at that thing as being one instantaneous moment. This great battle is going to happen. You know, bombs are going to go. Jesus is going to come back. Boom, it's all over and we're done. I don't believe that the picture that we're seeing represents a war that happens quickly. And so let me ask this a question. What if the war that we see at Armageddon a war that was, is, and will wage until Jesus Christ returns. What if we see it as a war that's currently happening right now? Would that change the way we live out our faith? Would it? I think it would. I think it would help us to remember that instead of seeing ourselves as spectators to the end of the world, we're actually participants in this holy war. The kind of believers who live remembering that while we are in the world, we're not of the world. The kind of believers who live for eternity instead of being consumed with the here and now. The Western church, to a large extent, friends, has lost the ability to live with a supernatural worldview. We live our faith every day with a very worldly worldview. We base our faith on the things that we have and the resources that are at our disposal. And we think if we don't have certain things, then surely we can't do what God wants us to do, friends. The persecuted church, on the other hand, has no interest in a worldly view of their faith. Because you know what the world's done to them? It's killed them. It's beaten them. It's destroyed them. It's cast them out, friends. They live every day with a supernatural worldview, reminding themselves that if it wasn't for the supernatural worldview that they hold, their lives would be doomed, friends. And I'm telling you this morning that the encouragement in Revelation is to remind us that we are part of this army, that the war is waging right now, friends, and we need to get into it. We need to stop avoiding it. We need to get on our knees and we need to start battling. We need to start changing our perspective. When I was in Israel a few weeks ago, 
I had the privilege of visiting a place called Qumran. Tim, you can put that picture up. Dim, I mean Dino. Dim, D- Dimo. Dino, my son. My beautiful son, I love you. This is a picture, that's not Qumran by the way, that's a cave, just in case you're wondering. But it is a cave that is located in the region of Qumran, where Qumran the settlement was. In fact, that's one of the caves that I took a photo of where some of the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in there. I'm not going to bore you with a history lesson, but let me tell you a little bit about Qumran. Qumran was a place where there was a sect of Jewish believers that lived. They were called the Essenes. These people wanted to separate themselves from Roman rule. The entire sort of establishment or settlement that they created happened somewhere between 150 to 200 BC. Now, this is not an encouragement to us as a church to go buy a ranch and disappear from society. That's not what I'm saying. Remember, Rome was a pagan culture that was enforcing pagan rules that was excluding people from operating in the market of the day. And so these Essenes decide to go out there and they decide to start carefully taking scripture that's been passed down throughout generations and re-recording it onto scrolls for posterity because one day everything that they had might be destroyed and so people need to remember the words of God and so they write these scrolls on these parchment papers and what's interesting is the only entire scroll to be found that's in in its completeness is the scroll of Isaiah which is quite mind-blowing considering it speaks of the suffering king that will come one day to save the nation of Israel, right? It's the only one that's in its completeness but besides that, along with all of these scrolls in these big sort of vases that they found in the caves, they found a bunch of stuff. They found pieces of scripture, they found inventory items, things that they kept in their, in their whatever, in their encampment. But then they also found all these ap- apocryphic texts, right? Like, book, like books like the book of Enoch, Jubilees. But there is one book in particular that I want us to reference this morning. It's from the first Qumran scroll. And it actually comes from a book called The War Rule. Now I want to be clear again, this is not scripture. But it is interesting because this little apocryphic text speaks about a Davidic Messiah that will one day come and annihilate all the forces of darkness. You see, their scenes lived with this supernatural worldview. They believed that there was a kingdom of darkness and there was a kingdom of light. And there was a war waging between light and darkness. This is what it says in the scroll. There will be no remnant. There will be no escape for the sons of darkness. Righteousness will shine over the ends of the earth and will shine until the extermination of all the seasons of darkness. Then there will come the season of God, in which the height of his greatness will shine and will bring peace, blessing, glory, joy, and length of days for all the sons of light. They will be on that day appointed from ancient times for the battle of the destructions of the sons of darkness. You see what the Essenes knew, written, this text was probably written in 164 BC, was that life was for us to be lived in a more meaningful way. They understood that it was more important to live for eternity than it was to live for the here and now. It was instead to be lived in the context of a spiritual battle, one that every one of us, whether we like it or not, whether we choose to believe it or not, are currently in, friends. What this text also does is reinforce what we see play out throughout the book of Revelation, friends. From the beginning of the book of Revelation, we've been introduced to a church who is currently fighting The first seven letters written to the seven churches. Every single church is under persecution. Every church is facing some type of hardship. 
Every church is facing, you know, horrible persecutions from the systems of this world, the economies of this world, pagan governments of this world. It moves on into the seals of God, right? What happens there? We start to see judgment play out. Jesus, the, the, the conquering king, is opening the scroll and he's bringing it about. And then you get all the way to the end where we see the victory. Throughout Revelation, this battle has been waging, friends. And we're in the middle of it. Revelation speaks not to a single moment in time where there's going to be one great glorious victory. It says that there's going to be a period of history in which the church needs to rise up. It needs to start coming closer to God as the world declines and it needs to start fighting this battle. It is a picture of the gospel advancing, friends. And I know it's convenient to think that it could all end in a second. And you know what, maybe it will. I don't know. I'm hoping that that's really ideal for me if it does end like that. But I do believe, friends, that we will see Christ return once we are operating as the army of God. It points us to the fact that we are the children of life. We've been engaging the forces of darkness, not at some point in the future, friends, but we've been engaging them every second of every single day. But I want to tell you this morning, as tiring as that sounds, there is good news, because look what Revelation 19 verse 20 says. It says, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who is in the presence, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. That's the end, friends. And the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who was sitting on the throne. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. What is the sword that comes out of the mouth of God? It's the word of God. It's the gospel message. This war is fought with the gospel. You see, in this battle, one that consists of Jesus riding at the head of his army, which is us. An army of, that's made up of believers from all across this world, from every tribe, from every trung, tongue, who are preaching the gospel. The beast cannot stand. Whether that's the beast of the sea with his seven heads that represent persecuting powers, whether it's a false, false Christianity and counterfeit gospel and false religion that's invaded the world, it cannot stand when we start to preach the gospel. They will be defeated. One day they'll be defeated for good, but until then there is a job to do. I want to close off this morning with some left field stuff. Who's ready to go for a little bit of an adventure? Raise your hands. It's been an adventure already, Catherine. It's good, I like it. Well, here's, here's a crazy adventure. Now you guys will probably think I've definitely lost my mind. There's a passage of scripture in the Old Testament that parallels what we've just read in Revelations almost identically. I want to read it for us and then I'm going to give you some insights and revelations that I felt like the Lord wanted me to share with you today. Ezekiel 39 and verse 17 says, As for you, son of man, that word son of man becomes important. It's always the way Christ has been referred to in Old Testament prophetic language, in the, including in the book of Daniel. Thus says the Lord God, Speak to the birds of every sort and to the beasts of the field. Assemble and come, gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you a great sacrificial feast on the mountain of Israel. And you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of he goats, of bulls, and all of them, fat beasts of Bashan. I want you to remember that word or that term, fat beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat fat till you are filled and drink blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I'm preparing for you. 
And you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. It's almost identical to what we've just read in Revelation. It does expand on it a little bit more, but there are some things that it mentions. It speaks about the princes of the earth. When Paul tells us in Ephesians that we are not fighting against flesh and blood, he says we are fighting against spiritual powers, right? Forces of darkness in heavenly realms. He speaks about principalities. There are beings out there that rejected God that are currently wanting to control the earth. This text shows us a supernatural dimension to the destruction that God is bringing. And then it mentions bulls of Bashan. You might be thinking, what is Bashan? Why is it even significant? Here's a map of Bashan here on the right-hand side. That is currently known today as Syria. Just south of that is the Jordan. And north of that is Lebanon. What you'll notice on the top right-hand corner is there is a particular mountain. That mountain there is called Mount Hermon. Ryan's going, oh my gosh, here he goes. Mount Hermon. Let me tell you why Bashan, and in particular Mount Hermon, is important. It's a spiritually significant place. And having been to Israel and having spoken to people who are not necessarily Christians, but who have believed the God of the Old Testament, this place holds powerful spiritual realities. Mount Hermon is the place where, according to extra-biblical texts like the book of Enoch, the rebellious angelic hosts that were defeated in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 6 by Archangel Michael when he cast seven, uh, Satan from heaven to earth were actually cast down. They believed Mount Her Hermon was the epicenter of where Satan began his work to corrupt humanity. It's the epicenter of what would ultimately become the experience we encounter in Genesis 6 with the rebellion and then the flood. And then, much later in biblical history, Bashan, if you remember, in the conquest of the Jordan and in the conquest of Canaan was the place where the nation of Israel would defeat really big people. Remember, they were called giants. King Og, King Sihon. Isaiah chapter 2 speaks about the mighty oaks. These people that were weirdly big, that had six fingers and had double rows of teeth. And we don't know what they are and don't even get me started. And there's a million conspiracy theories out there right now. And I don't want to get sucked into all of that this morning. But let me just tell you, friends, there was a supernatural reality. Something happened there and it was severe and it was great and it was desperate, friends. But here's something interesting. It's also the same place. We're at the foot of Mount Hermon. There's a picture. Put that picture up, Tim. Dino. Sorry, Dino. <laughs> there is a place here called the Gates of Hell. It's in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, this is probably one of my favorite accounts in all of Scripture, and so I'm going to read it to you again this morning. There's something significant that happens at this place, the very epicenter of supernatural darkness. Jesus and Peter have this conversation at the Gates of Hell. And Jesus says to his disciples, he says, who do all the people out there say that I am? And so they respond, they say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, some say a prophet. And Jesus asks and says, well, who do you say I am? You're my disciples, tell me who I am. Peter responds, he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responds to Peter and he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but this is from my father. And then he says this. On this rock, think of the rock he was standing on. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, friends. You see, when you understand the significance of the place, 
You understand the history of the region. You have to understand that when Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church, he was putting the enemy on notice. He was telling Satan, his minions, every one of them, that I am declaring war. And guess what? This war is a war that you're not going to be able to finish. You see, not long after this event, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. And what happens? He dies. And what does Satan do? He starts laughing, thinking, if that was your big war cry, well, guess what, buddy? You're dead. Three days later, Jesus rises, right? From the grave, preaches the gospel in the witness of companies, of many people. Later on, on Pentecost, just before, he ascends into heaven. And then what does he do? He pours out the Holy Spirit. What does Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says? For you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see, a convenient scripture that we often forget about is what happens in Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11, at the Tower of Babel, Nimrod, a crazy man with 16, 5,000 teeth, whatever it was, that didn't make sense. But this giant man builds a tower to the heavens, telling God that we are going to reject the God of creation, and instead we're going to follow our own gods, these small G gods, the sons of God, the sons that were cast out of heaven. We're going to follow them. So what does God do? He gives them over to the nations. On Pentecost, God brings the nations to Israel. He pours out His Spirit. He says, on the revelation of who I am, I will build my church, friends. What Satan saw as his greatest victory, friends, was his worst defeat. Because you know why? On that, in that moment, the rider on the white horse was inaugurated. He started riding. And he took the gospel message with him. And he's been taking it with him ever since, friends. The gates of hell cannot prevail because Jesus is on the horse. And Jesus is on the throne. And that's who's in us. Christ in me is the hope of glory. I say it every week, but until we we, we live our lives out like that, we're never going to have this revelation. We need to become the kind of church who instead of chasing comfort, a moment, an experience, great worship, or even a revival, friends, becomes a church that chases the God of revival and says, I want to preach the gospel unashamedly and unreserved. And then revival will come. And revival is not a moment. It's not a second. It's not an experience, friends. It is when the world turns in greater number to God. I believe that day is coming, friends. Now, I'm not saying that any of these things aren't real. I'm just saying, let's follow Jesus. Let's do what he asked us to do at the gates of hell. And let's push back the kingdom of darkness. Because guess what? The God that we serve is an overcomer. That means that the church we're in is not defeated. It's not hoping to struggle through this world and make it. We are victorious. We are more than conquerors. And we are overcomers. And so please, let's go preach the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you, the band can come up, for sending your son. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for us. Thank you for giving us this great revelation that can be sometimes hard to hear and hard to read and hard to unpack. But it's the reminder, Lord, that we win. And while that's great for us, I pray, Lord, this morning that for anyone here today that feels like they are struggling in this world, they're just struggling to make it through this world, never mind make sense of their faith or how they're going to preach the gospel, Lord. I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would fall mightily upon them. Fall upon me today, Lord. Help me understand the significance of what it means to be more than a conqueror, to be a victor, not a victim. 
to be a child of God, following lockstep with you in an army. An army not, that, an, not, not an army that might win, could potentially win, but an army that does win. I pray for boldness this morning on all of our hearts. That understanding the significance of what's coming. That there is a point of no return at some point in the future. That you would give us the boldness to preach your word, Lord. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ that pushes back the gates of hell. Help us, Lord, just to follow you. As you do the heavy lifting... And we just follow in in your commands. I pray that this statement on the wall in our church to know Christ and to make him known would not be something, Lord, that we just think, oh, that's cute. But help the significance of it be burnt onto our hearts forevermore. I pray this in Jesus' name. Let's stand and sing one last song. <laughs>